Hollywood. Glamour. Celebrities. Scandal. Hollywood isn't just known for how it smells like urine. No. There's usually a new scandal every day. If it's not one heiress doing this thing, then it's the son of that one guy who used to be famous doing another thing. Like the lens of a camera, it's cyclical, baby. But all these new Tinseltown scandals can hold a Roman candle to Hollywood's first trial of the century. A suspicious death, a bawdy blackmailer, and yes, a man named Fatty. The State of California versus silent screen star Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle this week on This Was a Thing. Sitting on a flagpole just for sport This was a thing That was a thing The cotton club where Ellington would swing This, that, these, those were things Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Ray. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. Now, on today's episode, we're looking at the Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle scandal. This was a thing because in the 1920s, Hollywood land was a dream to most outsiders. This scandal was one of the first things that made people realize the dream of the pictures had its own problems. This was also one of the first times when a story became oversensationalized due to the lies and misleading facts in the press. What? Yeah. The press lied? Isn't that crazy? I'm shocked. So this one, I'll be honest, is a kind of a bummer, so it's not going to be as fun and fancy free as every other episode. Because every other episode is very fun and fancy free, wouldn't you say? Well, we are produced by the Fun and Fancy Free Network. Yes, that's a sponsor. We should probably also give a content warning to our listeners that today our episode is going to be dealing with uh, some mature and uh, upsetting themes, such as sexual violence, which is what... Mr. Arbuckle was accused of. Yes, correct. And I, you know what? I don't know if he was convicted of it, but I'm sure you're going to tell us today. I am going to let you know. So if you've got a problem with that, you might want to just turn us off now and wait till our another episode drops next week. If you're okay, let's keep going. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle is one of the most famous silent film actors of his time in the comedies, even bigger than Chaplin, not just in size, but <laughs> also... <laughs> In appeal. Here actually is a quick audio clip of one of his most famous silent films. Pretty funny, huh, Rob? Ray, congratulations. I think that's the first dad joke that you have made <laughs> on this podcast. You want to hear something from a silent film? Look, I needed a good first, like, bit that would really... I loved it. I loved it. Okay. I, and I'm sure Fatty's smiling down on us. Thank you, Mr. Arbuckle. <laughs> now, I love old movies. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge TCM nut. However, I'm going to be honest and admit, I do not think I have ever seen a Fatty Arbuckle movie. I know that his name is tinged with scandal, mm -hmm. and that's probably one of the reasons why we don't see a lot of movies by exactly why. Fatty Arbuckle. What was he accused of? So he was accused of sexually assaulting a woman who eventually died, and the press got so crazy and carried away that it, it was one of those things they said that he was so big that he laid on top of her and it ruptured her internal organs. And that's one of those things that when I like looked into this and was like, oh, I should cover that, I still had my in my brain that Fatty Arbuckle crushed a woman to death. 
And I started reading it and I realized, you know, I've told a couple people like, oh, yeah, have you heard about that? I've been spreading lies about this man. And because that's what stuck out to me. And so, like, I feel guilty for almost 100 years later spreading false stories about this man. So this episode's going to have a lot of information. So I'm sorry, but I just I felt like I have to, like, put everything out there because there ended up being three trials for this. Oh, three trials. So the first trial was in 1921. Film is... Really beginning at this time. Exactly. So, I mean, film was still in its infancy. People were seeing moving pictures for the first time. You know, in 1921, probably in some parts of America, no one had ever seen anything like this. So, you know, he was one of the big draws to motion pictures. So it was like he was already a known person in the film industry and like the young film industry. And then this was so big that if it happened to an actor that maybe wasn't as big, it probably wouldn't be in the news as much as him. But since he was so known, it was sensationalized. And I think this is interesting because of how the media covered it. And you see so much nowadays with like TMZ and Perez Hilton. I don't know if he's still as popular, but they throw out all these initial facts before... I feel like you're using facts in quotation marks. Yeah, well, exactly. Accusations, is, I guess, was the better... So are you saying that the Fatty Arbuckle scandal is laying the foundation of what we know today as how modern media covers... A thousand, thousand percent. Okay. I think I look at this as the first big media scandal that everyone was covering nationwide probably worldwide i didn't look into i'm sure this was an international yeah, so story. i mean it's just like i said there were a couple other scandals one was like here well let me just go ahead and just cover really quick the other five scandals because there were about five so in 1920 silent film actress olive thomas died after accidentally drinking mercury bichloride which her husband matinee idol jack pickford had been using as a topical treatment for syphilis there were rumors that it had been a suicide in february 1922 the murder of william desmond taylor yeah. in 1923 actor director wallace reed's dependency on morphine resulted in his death and then in 1924 actor writer director thomas h Incy died mysteriously aboard William Randolph Hearst's yacht, which William Randolph Hearst is going to be a big person that factors into this. And that was 24. So the trials ended. Everything was around 1923. It kind of subsided. So the next year, the man who was helping ruin Fatty Arbuckle's career had his own incident involving a writer, actor, director on his yacht. So and I'm sure that he was very keen on covering up facts on that. Anyway, let me just get into Fatty Arbuckle. Roscoe Conkling Arbuckle was born on March 24, 1887 in Smith Center, Kansas. Weighing around 13 pounds at birth, his father believed him to be illegitimate because both parents had slim builds. So because of this, he was named after New York Senator Roscoe Conkling, a known philanderer who his father despised. Oh. When he was two, the family moved to Santa Ana, California, so he was closer to Hollywood. He started performing when he was eight and continued to do so until he was 11 until his mother died, and then... Then his dad said, no more to that. You have to get a job. So he went and got a job at a hotel. And I guess while he was working, he would just love to sing all the time. And someone there said, hey, there's an amateur talent show. You should, you know, enter. This is one of those talent shows where the audience cheered or jeered, you know. And if you were bad, a shepherd's crook would come out of the side and pull you off stage. Can't they just simply say, you have to leave now? No. He got up on stage and, you know, started doing some singing and making jokes and he started getting booed. And for fear of getting the shepherd's crook, he tumbled off stage and everyone thought that was so funny. 
So because a big guy tumbled off stage, he ended up winning the competition. And that's what started his career in vaudeville. So in 1908, he married Minta Durfee. And they were a very strange couple because she was very short and petite and he weighed 300 pounds. So are they fat shaming this guy? Is the press fat shaming him? I mean, they definitely get into his size. Roscoe. So he got famous starring in Max Sennett's Keystone Cops comedies. His large size was obviously part of his comic appeal, but he wouldn't allow it to be used for a cheap gag. Good for him. Like he wouldn't get stuck in chairs or doorways and stuff like that. And he was always very self-conscious of it. And he didn't like when people called him fatty. That's why I keep correcting myself a hundred years later to respect this man. Because, yes, he was known as Fatty Arbuckle. But you know what? I... I'll call him Roscoe, and yes, I may call him Fatty a couple times, so sorry, but, but I'm doing but my best. I'm doing best my to damnedest call to call him Roscoe. Even though he was 300 pounds, he was very agile and acrobatic, so that was his appeal, is that he knew he was a big guy and that he was acrobatic, and so I like the fact that he wouldn't let really his weight, her size, be the thing that led to bits. Good for you, Roscoe. In 1914, Paramount Pictures gave him the then crazy offer of $1,000 a day, plus 25% of all profits and complete artistic control to make movies. What a star. So he must have been bringing in a lot of money for that. Huge money. Those movies were so popular that in 1918, Paramount offered him a three-year, $3 million contract, and today that'd be about $52.5 million for three years. So, I mean, he was a giant star. So this is where all the scandal starts happening. So on September 5th, 1921, Arbuckle, who was now 34 years old, decided to take a vacation to San Francisco and drove to San Francisco with two friends, Lowell Sherman, an actor, and Fred Fishback, a director. Are you making these names? Are you changing the names to protect the innocent? No. No, these are actually the real yeah. names. Okay, so they checked into three separate rooms at the St. Francis Hotel, room 1219 for Arbuckle and Fishback to share. They shared a room. Yeah. 1221 was for Lowell Sherman, and 1220 was deemed as the potty room. So they're all in these connecting rooms. Yeah. So, so they, they can keep the doors exactly. open. Exactly. They invited several women to the party room. And during the partying, a 26-year-old aspiring actress named Virginia Rappe was found seriously ill in room 1219. And that was the room Arbuckle was in. The hotel doctor examined her and concluded that her symptoms were mostly caused by intoxication. And he gave her morphine to calm her down. She wasn't hospitalized until two days after the incident, though. And don't forget, this was in the middle of prohibition so all the alcohol all the hooch they were getting was all illegal hooch got it this is i think probably the worst person in this whole thing but the best name of them all bambina maud delmont oh my god so bambina maud delmont she was rapé's friend and she was at the party as well and she told the doctor that arbuckle had sexually assaulted rapé but the doctor had found no evidence of this when he examined her and then Virginia Rappe ended up dying a day later after that. Oh. The cause of death was from peritonitis, which is when the lining of the abdomen gets inflamed, and that in turn caused a ruptured bladder. So she gets sick from alcohol. She has alcohol poisoning. Mm-hmm. This doctor gives her morphine. Yeah. How long is it between the doctor giving her morphine and her dying? It seems like it's three to four days because after the morphine she was hospitalized for two days and then i'm pretty sure she got out and then she died a a day later so bambina mod delmont in that time was going around saying this is what happened fatty arbuckle roscoe arbuckle was involved and he sexually assaulted her so she's saying to everyone 
oh, the reason she's sick is because he assaulted her. The reason that she suffered from internal organ issues is because from him rupturing her bladder from sexually assaulting her. I see. Rappé is said to have been, have suffered from a, a urinary tract infections a lot, and sometimes liquor would irritate them dramatically. And she developed a reputation for over-imbibing at parties and tearing her clothes off when she got too drunk. And the reason for tearing her clothes off was because of the intense physical pain of the UTIs. She just had a lot of internal issues in her, on her own. I don't think she was very healthy, I guess. you know. And, and the drinking was not helping. And the drinking was not helping. After Bambina told police that Arbuckle had sexually assaulted her, the police concluded the weight of his body laying on top of hers was enough to rapture her bladder. And this is where the press comes in. The doctor said that or the police said the that? The police said that. Did Bambini? Bambina. Did she go to the police? Yes. So she went to the police and said, oh, she's dead because he assaulted her. Yes, I'm sure the police were called to the scene and everything, but she started planting all the stories it seems like in the ears of police and then also the media picked up the story and then so the media started turning it and then bambina was like oh i'm on the same side as the media so she just kind of started filling in they started filling in each other's blanks where roscoe didn't get to have his chance to defend himself until any trial okay at the time this was the biggest scandal hit hollywood like i said repay's manager al simnacker he held a press conference and accused arbuckle of using a piece of ice to simulate sex with repay which led to her injuries so he said that the ice melting inside of her body helped inflame her bladder this was her lawyer this was her manager her manager yeah okay. and by the time the newspapers reported it the piece of ice turned into a coke or champagne bottle oh my god and witnesses ended up testifying that they saw arbuckle with ice but that he was only using it to rub on her stomach to help ease the abdominal pain so there's two stories one story is she was sick and he decided to comfort her or assuage her pain. And that's what like his friend his friend said. That's what his friend said. Yes. The other said he was taking the ice and he was using it sexually on her. Yeah, the manager suggested that, but then the press turned that from ice into that he was using a Coke bottle or a champagne bottle. Okay. And so if you think 1921 in the newspaper. In 2021, I'm mortified. Well, exactly. But just imagine oh, yeah. 100 years ago, like reading that in the newspaper. They printed all that. Yeah, Hearst, Hearst was relentless. when This it wasn't like the Inquirer. This was no, an actual this legitimate. Was William Randolph Hearst was the leading newspaper magnate at that time. And there was no other journalist or other article like coming to Roscoe's defense Not saying. Not that I saw. So America was only reading the one side of the story and they were making their own assumptions. And so before he even got to trial, America had already made their mind up because it was such a covered story. Well, that happens all the time. Well, yeah, but this was... This was the first time. But this is, Exactly. Everyone that knew Arbuckle knew him as a good-natured guy. He was shy around women, and he'd been described as the most chaste person in in pictures. So he was not known for being one of the, the playboys of Hollywood, if you will. Even still, Studio's executive ordered Arbuckle's industry friends not to publicly speak of him, fearing it would cause negative publicity. And so the studios controlled the actors back then, and so if the actors stepped out, they would just lose their contract. So the studio is saying, if you want to defend him, you can't. And if you do, we're going to fire you. Correct. Okay. Let's get to the pretrial. What exactly is Roscoe Arbuckle being charged with? Murder? Yes. They said that he killed her from sexually assaulting her. So he's being charged with her death. Charged with her death. So the prosecutor was San Francisco DA Matthew Brady, and he had big ambitions, and he was going to run for governor. 
the DA had already made public statements about Arbuckle's guilt before it even started, and he also pressured witnesses to make false statements. And so this DA, because he wanted to run for governor, I think he was just— He needs a conviction. He was trying to get the biggest conviction of the time, because if he could be the one responsible for convicting Arbuckle of this, then that that would be huge to run on. So Brady was happy to have Bambina Maudelmont as his star witness when the indictment hearings were held. But the defense obtained a letter from Delmont admitting to a plan to extort money from Arbuckle. And Delmont's story was always constantly changing. So if I understand this correctly, she was going to go to Roscoe Arbuckle and say, pay me or I'm telling everyone that you assaulted her. Yes. Okay. And we don't know if she ever contacted Arbuckle and Arbuckle was like, go fuck yourself. No. From what I understand, it seems like she was one of the women that got invited to the party. And it seemed like she was someone that always was looking for an opportunity. Got it. And so I'm sure she saw this Arbuckle party as, oh, well, I bet I could use him for that. And I'm guessing she probably wasn't expecting the result to be the death. Of course not. And so, you know, she thought she could walk away with a pocket full of money, but then she ended up getting this worldwide exposure. And you also said that her story was never consistent. Yeah, it was never consistent. So it was just always changing. So that on itself was... That's an issue. An issue. The judge found no evidence of sexual assault, but a testimony from another party guest Zay Prevon said that Repay had told her that Roscoe hurt me on her deathbed. The judge decided that Arbuckle could be charged with first-degree murder. Brady had originally planned to seek the death penalty, and the charge was reduced to manslaughter. Okay, so there's another friend who comes forward. Zay Previn. These names. And Zay Previn says, Virginia told me on her deathbed. Roscoe hurt me. Okay. So here's the first trial. The first trial? Yes. There's three trials. The first trial began on November 14th, 1921 at the city courthouse in San Francisco. Arbuckle's lead defense was Gavin McNabb, a local attorney, and the principal witness was Zay Previn. At the beginning of the trial, Arbuckle told his already estranged wife, Minta Durfee, that he did not harm Repay. She believed him, and she appeared regularly at the courtroom to support him, and public feeling was so negative towards her that one time someone shot at her as she was entering the courthouse because she's supporting because she's supporting her man okay so here's some bullet points from the trial so witness betty campbell who was a model who was present at the party testified that she saw arbuckle with a smile on his face hours after the alleged assault Grace Holtzen, a local hospital nurse, testified it was very likely that Arbuckle assaulted Repay and bruised her body in the process. Dr. Edward Heinrich, a local criminologist, claimed that the fingerprints on the door to the hallway was evidence that Repay had tried to flee, but that Arbuckle had stopped her by putting his hands over her hands. Dr. Arthur Beardsley, the hotel doctor who examined Repay, testified that an external force seemed to have damaged the bladder. But when Arbuckle's attorney took the floor, he was able to get Betty Campbell to admit that Brady had threatened to charge her with perjury if she didn't testify against Arbuckle. He got people to cast out on Dr. Heinrich's claim to have found fingerprints on the doorway. McNabb produced a maid from the St. Francis Hotel who testified that she had thoroughly cleaned the room before the investigation took place. So there couldn't have been fingerprints. Yeah, there couldn't have been fingerprints. Roscoe's lawyer got Dr. Beardsley to admit that Repay had never mentioned being sexually assaulted while he was treating her. And he got Nurse Houston to admit that the rupture of Repay's bladder could have been the result of cancer and that the bruising on her body could have been due to the heavy jewelry she was wearing that evening. So on 
November 28th, Arbuckle testified as his defense final witness. He was simple, direct, unflustered in both direct and cross-examination. In his testimony, Arbuckle claimed that Repay, who he testified he had known for five or six years, so they knew each other, I guess, going into it, he testified that she came into the room around noon that day and that sometime afterwards he went to his room, 1219, to change clothes after May Taub asked him for a ride into town. So May Taub was just another party guest that was there. How many people are in this fucking party? I mean, they had they had all the free illegal hooch, so of course people <laughs> were going up there. In his room, Arbuckle discovered Repay in the bathroom vomiting into the toilet. He then claimed Repay told him she felt ill and asked to lie down, and that he carried her into the bedroom and asked a few of the party guests to help treat her. When Arbuckle and a few of the guests re-entered the room, they found Repay on the floor near the bed, tearing at her clothes and going into violent convulsions. To calm Repay down, they placed her in a bathtub full of cool water. Arbuckle and Fishback then took her to room 1227 and called the hotel manager and doctor. And at this point, those present thought Repay just was very drunk, including the hotel doctors, and they probably assumed Repay would just sleep it off and Arbuckle drove the other party guest into town so he thought okay you know she's probably fine she's probably just drunk so he probably didn't think anything of it because the hotel doctor came in and all this stuff so he felt okay well if a medical professional said she's fine i should just leave her during the whole trial the prosecution presented medical descriptions of repay's bladder as evidence that she had an illness and in his testimony arbuckle denied any knowledge of repay's illness so he had no idea about it Arbuckle maintained that he had never physically hurt or sexually assaulted Repay in any way during that party and that he had never made an inappropriate sexual advance to any women in his life. There were over two weeks of testimony with 60 prosecution and defense witnesses, including 18 doctors who testified about Repay's illness. On December 4th, 1921, the jury returned after being deadlocked for five days. After nearly 44 hours of deliberation, the result was a 10 to not guilty verdict, which resulted in a mistrial. So because it's a mistrial, they can charge him again. So there's a second trial. Great segue. Hey, friends, hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, could you do us a favor? After you listen to today's episode, open up your podcast app and leave us a review, please. The more reviews we get, the more people will discover us, and the more people that discover us, the less lost we'll feel. You're good, buddy. It's okay. Uh, look, nothing has ever been easier to do. Just go ahead and grab a pen real quick. It's okay. We'll wait. Don't worry. Okay, head on over to your podcast app, click those three dots in the lower right-hand corner, click Go to Show, Scroll down till you see ratings and reviews, then leave us some stars and a comment or two so our parents know that it was worth all the tuition that they spent. And if you really love us, head on over to Patreon.com and send us some money, and in return, you will get access to merch, special episodes, bonus content, pictures of me shirtless. Okay, okay, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Search This Was A Thing and help us out. But you know what? You've already helped us out today by listening to us, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you. Second trial. So the second trial began on January 11th, 1922, and there was a whole new jury, but the same prosecution and defense teams. Now, this is hard because the prosecution and the defense in the first trial have already shown each other their hand. Exactly. So same evidence presented. 
But this trial, a key witness, Zay Previn, testified that the DA, Brady, had forced her to lie in the first trial. A Culver Studios security guard, Jesse Norgard, testified that Arbuckle had once shown up at the studio and offered him a cash bribe in exchange for the key to Rapay's dressing room. Arbuckle said that he wanted to play a joke on the actress. Norgard said that he refused to give the key. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He knew her? It seems like they had known each other because in the first trial it came out that they knew each other for five, six years. So when they would see each other in San Francisco, it does make sense that, oh yeah, come on up, Virginia. From what I read, it always she was more of a chorus girl than a lead, but she still seemed to have a dressing room. And so he knew her enough that he wanted to go to a security guard and play a practical joke. That's what he said. Yeah, that's what he said. So this isn't some woman that showed up to the party and they... they yes, they had known each other. During cross-examination, Norgard's testimony was called into question when he was revealed to be an ex-convict who was currently charged with sexually assaulting an eight-year-old girl and who was also looking for a sentence reduction from Brady in exchange for his testimony. So this is the security guard who's saying... Arbuckle wanted the keys to her dressing room. Yes, so he was an ex-con trying to get a lighter sentence from Brady, the district attorney. Got it, got it, got it. So, yeah, Brady was seemed to have been a guy who was trying to set as many people in to the trial so he could get that big win for his run for governor. But regardless of the motivation, it is a fact that Arbuckle did ask for the keys. Yes, that seems to be, yes. Why tr- is yeah, debatable. Why is debatable, okay. but he did, he did ask. He did ask, and Arbuckle said that it was to play a joke. So that did happen, but mm-hmm. then it was also called into question because the security guard didn't have the best past. Okay. Further, in contrast to the first trial, Rapace's history of promiscuity and heavy drinking was heavily detailed. So they're going to put the victim on trial now. Yes, the victim is going on trial, exactly. So the second trial also discredited some major evidence, such as the identification of Arbuckle's fingerprints on the hotel bedroom door. Heinrich took back his earlier testimony from the first trial and testified that the fingerprint evidence was likely faked. The defense was so convinced of an acquittal that Arbuckle was not called to testify. His lawyer, McNabb, made no closing argument to the jury. Some jurors interpreted the refusal to let Arbuckle testify as a sign of guilt. After five days and over 40 hours of deliberation, the jury returned on February 3rd, deadlocked with a 10-2 majority in favor of conviction, resulting in another mistrial. Oh, my God. What a... Wow. Yeah. By the time of Arbuckle's third trial, his films had been banned. The stories in the newspapers for seven months were of Hollywood orgies, murder, and sexual perversion. This was almost like the first thing that showed that Hollywood had deceitful figures in it. You know what I mean? Like, where nowadays all you think about is, yes, Hollywood has some great things, but it's full of garbage people. And this was, I think, one of the first things that showed the world oh wait, Hollywood has shitty people just like every other profession out there. Bambina Ma Delmont at this point was touring the country giving one-woman lectures as the woman who signed the murder charge against Arbuckle, and she was lecturing on the evils of Hollywood. So people were paying to go see Bambina Ma Delmont give lectures because of the things they were reading in the newspapers. This is kind of like when the O.J. Simpson trial happened and everybody wrote a fucking book. Exactly. Millie Delmont, what's her name again? Bambina Ma Delmont. I cannot remember this name to oh, save the life Rob, of me. I've written this name so many times in this fucking article that I say it in, to my head just when I'm pouring coffee in the morning. Bambina Ma Delmont. Okay, so she's off giving lectures across the country yeah, about the sins the, of Hollywood. 
Hollywood. The evils of Hollywood. Was she at the party? Yes, she was. So at, she. So she. So went, she was the. She was the leading figure. She was the one who was giving police the information because she was there. So Miss Sanctimonious over here. She also is making money off of this experience, and she was going to a party with these horrible Hollywood types and engaging in illegal activity, which was drinking liquor. Okay. Keep up the great work, Bambina. The third trial began March 13th, 1922. This time, Arbuckle's defense went in with a guns ablazing. His attorney, McNabb, completely tore apart the prosecution's case with long and aggressive examination and cross-examination of each witness. McNabb also managed to get in more evidence about Rapay's lurid past and medical history. Another hole in the prosecution's case was opened when Zay Previn, a key witness, was out of the country after fleeing police custody and unable to testify. As in the first trial, Arbuckle testified as the final witness and again maintained his denials and his heartfelt testimony about his version of the events at the party. And Buster Keaton is said to have been in the courtroom and provided important evidence to prove Arbuckle's innocence. Bambina Maud Delmont was involved in prostitution, extortion, and blackmail. And Keaton was the one who brought that evidence into the third trial because he had been around Hollywood enough to know of what this woman is all about. Bambina. Right? I knew it. So it all goes back to this woman who was just the one who was trying to find ways to make money off of rich people, and it just didn't go the way she was planning. So during closing arguments, McNabb reviewed how flawed the case was against Arbuckle from the very start and how Brady fell for the outlandish charges of Bambina Maud Delmont, who McNabb described as the complaining witness who never witnessed because she was there, but she never saw any assault. The jury began deliberations on April 12th and only took six minutes to return with a unanimous not guilty verdict. Five of those minutes were spent writing a formal apology to Arbuckle for putting him through the whole ordeal. It was something that very rarely happens in the American justice system, and the jury statement was read by the jury foreman. And I'm going to read the whole thing because it's This happened in a jury. A jury foreman wrote this. Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done to him. We feel also that it was only our plain duty to give him this exoneration under the evidence, for there's not the slightest proof adduced to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story on the witness stand, which we all believed. The happening at the hotel was an unfortunate affair for which Arbuckle, so the evidence shows, was in no way responsible. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women who have sat listening for 31 days of evidence that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. Could you imagine a jury doing writing something like that like i i i think that is so worded so well and there were men and women on the jury yeah so after reading the apology statement the jury foreman personally handed the statement to arbuckle and then one by one the 12 person jury plus the two jury alternates walked up to arbuckle's defense table where they shook his hand and embraced him and personally apologized to him and the entire jury proudly posed with arbuckle for photographers after the verdict and apology Because alcohol was consumed at the party, Arbuckle was forced to plead guilty to one count of violating the Volstead Act, which was made to help carry out prohibition laws. So he had to pay a $500 fine. So of everything, it was just the fact that he had a legal hooch. That's what he got in trouble for. At the time of his acquittal, he owed 
$700,000 in legal fees to his attorneys for the three criminal trials, which today is equivalent to $11 million. And he was forced to sell his house and all of his cars to pay off some of his debt. And the scandal and subsequent trials hurt Arbuckle's popularity greatly, like I was saying. Even though he was acquitted and received a formal apology from the jury, his reputation was just shot, and the effects of the scandal continued. And so William H. Hayes, who served as the head of the newly formed Motion Pictures, Producers, and Distributors of America Censor Board, cited Arbuckle as an example of poor morals in Hollywood. And on April 18, 1922, six days after Arbuckle's acquittal, Hayes banned him from ever working in U.S. movies again. So after he was acquitted, he was banned from working in movies again. Hayes also requested all showings and bookings of Arbuckle films be canceled. And with Arbuckle's films now banned, Keaton, his friend, Buster Keaton, signed an agreement to give Arbuckle 35% of all future profits from his production company, hoping that could help his friend out in any way financially. So this just kind of shows how good of a person Buster Keaton was. I'm sure he had his own problems and stuff, but man... He stuck by his friends. In December of that same year, 1922, due to public's demand, uh, Hayes lifted the ban on Arbuckle, but that didn't really matter ultimately because he was still unable to ever find work as an actor because his name had been dragged. Eventually, Arbuckle and his wife Minta divorced in 1924, and he married twice more in his life, but he was never really able to find great acting work again. Although eventually he worked as, an, as a director under the pseudonym William Goodrich, which some say Arbuckle used his father's full name. His father's full name was William Goodrich Arbuckle as an inspiration behind the alias. But another tale, which I think is better, is credited to Buster Keaton, who loved a good pun, who suggested that Arbuckle become a director under the alias Will Be Good. But since it was too obvious, Arbuckle adopted the more formal pseudonym William Goodrich, which... I think of that. I mean, yes, it is true. It's his dad's name, but I just love a good pun. He signed a contract in 1932, 10 years after, with Warner Brothers to star under his own name in a series of six two-reel comedies, and these were the only recordings of Arbuckle's voice, and he's the first pe person who speaks in this clip. This is my clip for the episode. Uh, is this job still open? Oh, you are a baker. Yes, sir, and I sure need dough. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> well, there's the kitchen. You can start in right away. Thanks. Yeah. Notably, Shemp Howard, the fourth of the three Stooges, appears in all of these shorts with him. So that was before Shemp rejoined the Stooges. They were very successful in America, but when Warner Brothers tried to release the first one, Hey Pop, in the UK, the British Board of Film Censored cited the 10-year-old scandal and refused to release them. On June 28, 1933, Arbuckle finished filming the last of his six two-reelers. The next day, he signed a contract with Warner Brothers to star in a feature-length comedy. That night, he went out with his friends to celebrate the first anniversary to his third wife, as well as the new contract. He reportedly said, This is the best day of my life. Later on in the evening, Roscoe Arbuckle suffered a heart attack and died in his sleep. He was 46 years old. Unfortunately, most of Arbuckle's films survive only as worn prints. Hardly any effort was made to preserve films back then in the early days of Hollywood. Keaton and Chaplin have a ton of movies, you know, they made sure, but I think the Arbuckle scandal didn't make them want to preserve his comedies, which is just sad because he is described to be one of the best and most popular comedy actors of all time and because of a scandal that ruined his career most of the humor and stuff that he brought to film is probably and will never be seen again so it's just a bummer so on that note okay so we'll take a break now but when we come back 
I have so many questions. I literally feel like a like a lawyer. I've written down just about every single question I could ask about this case. So we'll take a quick recess. Sure. And when we come back, I'd love to cross-examine you, Mr. Hubel. This was a thing. This was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. All right, what do you got for me? This is TMZ. We need the juicy scoop. Well, Bambina Maudel Mount was seen outside of the Roosevelt Hotel. She's on her tour talking about how bad Hollywood is, see? How bad Hollywood is? She should be on a tour talking about how bad my mother-in-law is. Good one, boss. Oh, you don't even have a mother-in-law, you confirmed bachelor. Uh, they say. Uh, what did Lady Delmont say? Any scoop on the Fatty Arbuckle trial? Nothing, but our cameraman caught up with her outside the Roosevelt Hotel after the premiere of Buster Keaton's Why Are You Always Hitting My Face? Bambina Mont-Delmont, where are you going? I'm going to pray for the lost souls of Hollywood and my dear late friend Veronica. Virginia? That's what I said, and mark my words, I will be at that trial every day just to hear the jury say, Guilty! Yes, W.C. Fields is guilty! Fatty Arbuckle? Exactly! Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to score some bathtub gin and shoot Clorox right into my patootie. Boy, that Bambina Delmon is the cat's pajamas, isn't she? Speaking of cat's pajamas, I hear that Theta Barrow only sleeps on sheets made of dead kittens. Ugh, Hollywood land. A place where even now I'm uncomfortable by over half the things I know. Thank you. This was a sketch. Okay, we're back. So some of the questions I had, you actually had answered as we went along, which was, what did Bambina have to gain in all of this? Because she had only met Virginia a couple of days, I think, before they went to this party together, so they weren't close friends. It didn't seem like they were close, and it seemed like Bambina knew how to get into yeah. certain parties that she pr- wouldn't have access to normally. And then the question was answered because obviously she was trying to extort money from Arbuckle. Yeah. She had seemed to have this reputation of briberies was a word that I think was associated with her quite Blackmail. often. Okay, so I understand that. Did they ever check to see if she actually had had cancer? They didn't ever check for it, no, but they said that later on it could have been, her ruptured organs could have been caused by cancer or an abortion. She also had cystitis, I think, so she had all of the, okay, and when they were like, oh, she might have had an abortion, and we have to remind our listeners, of course, back then, abortions back then were incredibly unsafe. Yeah, I mean, it was awful. And many, many women died from the ramifications of having an illegal abortion, and many of the times organs would be punctured and destroyed. Now, when when they said, oh, this might have been the case, they couldn't look at her organs anymore because they had already buried her? Is yeah, that- and I think her up, her it was just... They were not in good condition to be able to like okay. check them. Okay. The prints on the doorknob, I'm con- I'm confused about because they were like, well, the maid cleaned the room. How many maids clean doorknobs? The maid's gonna vacuum. She's gonna dust, and she's gonna make the bed. She's not gonna clean the doorknobs. It's one of those things that maybe this was an expensive hotel, and <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, the the fingerprints thing was that was the thing that got me like the most confused. Okay, and maybe I missed this. So it sounds like the party was held in rooms that were adjoining each other and they just kept the doors open so people could easily yeah. pass in and out. In one of those rooms is that where this alleged assault took place? Yes. It, so they just closed the door. Is that what I, happened? I'm guess I'm guessing they closed the door. I'm guessing they I'm guessing that the 
they were okay with closing the doors and everyone knew what a closed door meant if there was like a sock on the doorknob. But then there's also later on it says that room 1227 comes into play and that she was brought to room 1227 and in like the research and stuff that was only that room was only brought up so I don't know if that was just an open room that they were like hey we need to bring, get her away from the party just so maybe you know loud noises or stuff so she doesn't I get interrupted. See, I see, I see. And I can I mean they had the money where I'm sure they could get another hotel room to put someone in just to rest. And this Zay Previn mm-hmm. said on her deathbed, Virginia re- revealed to her, Roscoe hurt me. Yes. Anything about Zay Previn we should be aware of? Zay Previn was the one who, for the second or third trial, skipped the United States and left because of lying. And Brady was trying to get them to lie in trial so he brady was putting pressure on her brady was putting pressure on her but was okay so let's go back if i can was brady saying to her yeah she i know she made this confession to you but boy it would really help us if you told us that she said more than that it seemed like brady was giving them leading answers if you will but his only concern was getting a conviction it seemed like sure but the roscoe hurt me statement is that what I'm asking is, is that an accurate statement and he asked to embellish on that? Or are we saying that maybe that statement was never made at all and he's making Zay Previn say that? That may have never, it seems like that may have never been said. In the second trial, she testified Brady had forced her to lie in the first trial. And then in the third trial, she skipped town. And the first trial is where she said Roscoe. Yes, exactly. She said Roscoe she, said yeah, the first me. trial. So the first trial is where most of the big false claims were made. Now, obviously, you know, Thank God we live in a time where sexual assault is taken much more seriously than it was back 100 years ago. Did they ever do any sort of examination of Miss Repay to see if she had been sexually assaulted? It seems like they didn't do any examination beyond the initial hotel doctor said that there didn't seem to be any evidence of a sexual assault and so i don't know what kind of examination he had done but then so that was said but then with the ice being near an area that roscoe was using to help with abdominal pain is probably just like oh what's the easiest thing i can do to help with your tummy Mm -hmm. that was turned into he that he used that on her and then that was turned into the coke bottle and champagne bottle i see i see i see so here's here's a question that i have that you might not know the answer to and maybe our listeners will know the answer and they can help us out at this time it was normal for so many of these big hollywood stars to do illegal things oh yeah murder people assault people drink carouse and they would consistently be arrested so here's my question is there's so many individuals at the studio we have found out in later years protected their money makers by bribing district attorneys and bribing police officers and all that stuff uh, bribing newspaper writers why did the studio not protect Arbuckle? Why didn't they just pay Bambina off? Why didn't they pay the doctors off? Why didn't they pay the hotel off? I never found anything about that. That's in, but if I had to, I mean, make an uneducated guess, I would say probably because at this point the newspapers had already taken it and sensationalized the story. And here's the thing: maybe other stories didn't involve the accidental death of a woman. So that, you know, maybe could be no, co- well, a lot of these stories involve the pur- the purposeful deaths of people. I know, but I think that since, OK, purposeful deaths, but then they could cover it up. This was one of those things where it was a death and there couldn't really be covered up maybe as easily as 
dropping them into the Griffith Park Lake. Before they got the chance to cover it up. Because this also was in San Francisco, yeah. if you think about it, where if stuff maybe happened in Southern California, it could have been taken care of quicker. Also, one of the things I'm curious about is the lack of studio control on this situation. Is that what prompted them later on to be even more protective with their with their stars? This could have also, yeah, very well been the thing to go to make them put even crazier rules. Because it seems like in the 40s and 50s that the studio system gets even crazier with maintaining like control over people. I mean, look at Judy Garland's story was a lot of the stuff with the studio system. Uh, oh, no, of course, of course, of course. And I mean, I mean, there's stories of, you know, we find out now that, you know, this celebrity killed this person and they covered it up. Or this celebrity that looked so pious on screen was actually incredibly promiscuous, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so then I think it begs the question for me to ask, you've done all the research on all of this. Do you think that he assaulted this woman or do you think that he's just a victim of being in the wrong place at the wrong time? I truly think, from what I've read, it seems like he was just a victim of the wrong place at the wrong time. With all the evidence that supported and with how Brady was trying to sensationalize things to get to move his career, how Bambina Maud Delmont was one of the types of people that did anything to get her name in the newspaper to also get a buck, which she did a tour, to Hollywood being in its infancy and being afraid that this is going to be the scandal that'll ruin everything. So them banning Arbuckle's career, his films and stuff just to save their hide. You know what I mean? Because if that was showing America that was, you know, very religious at the time that, oh, well, yes, we're not standing for this because uh, the one big one, look what we did to him. So, I mean, this almost was a setting a precedent for stars not to act out, even though Arbuckle may not have been guilty. And at this time, actors did have that reputation of like actors are less than. Yeah. You know, how many things did you see where there'd be signs in a hotel? No, no pets or actors allowed. And that would be legitimate. Okay. I'm. I am so torn on this. I am so torn. I just feel like I don't know. Here's the thing. I don't know enough. I don't know if he did anything bad. Or, you know, he could have very... But it just seems like with all the surrounding characters that had worse motives yeah, and worse history, there's so many factors that made this case blow up. I don't think... It, it sounds like a proper autopsy was not done. Exactly. On her. The thing that I was hanging on to, but it sounds like I just have to discount at this point, was the fact that... Uh, Zay Previn said that Virginia admitted to her, Roscoe hurt me. But now that seems like that ended up being a lie. And it seems like that was a, I mean, that seems like a very good planted line to be said in the first trial. Yeah. From what I understand, Brady to be capable of. Yeah. I mean, I'm not taking into account the, the character witnesses for him, which are like, oh, he's such a great guy and he's such a nice guy. Because I think how many times in history have we seen yes, that? Absolutely. And the person ends up being you know, an absolute monster. Did the district attorney ever become the governor? No, he did okay, not. Of course, great. Yeah. Okay, great. I don't think this helped in his his long, illustrious career outside of being a DA. I'm also kind of hung up on the fact that, like you said, this guy was making millions of dollars a year, and when he goes up to San Francisco, he wants to share a room with the guy. I don't know. I, I have no proof, but apparently there's not a lot of proof in this in this particular case, and we'll never know. We'll never know, but obviously this was a thing because it really started off the trend of how to cover a Hollywood scandal. And it seems like it's one of those cases in the press where it's you're guilty until you're proven innocent. And then you're proven innocent with an unprecedented step of the jury apologizing to you for having yeah. to put you through this. And even still, the person couldn't 
live his life again after having been cleared by the legal system. And if you think about today, like with, like I keep saying, TMZ, Press Hilton, all those gossip blogs and stuff, this story would have been even bigger and more people were commenting on it. Instead of just having to wait till the next morning's newspaper giving you the news, there would have been live tweeting from the oh, courtroom. You know, And I kind of like that the most morally reprehensible person, which is William Randolph Hearst, is the one who's leading the charge going, look how bad this this other person is. Yeah. Look at him. Don't look at don't look don't look at me while I'm over here doing even worse things. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have learned a lot today, and I'm so curious, listeners, if there's anything that you would love to share about your thoughts on the Roscoe Arbuckle trial, or if you have any more information about it, please let us know. Because this is absolutely fascinating. And Ray, thanks so much for introducing me to all of this material. Of course. All right, folks. I think to get us into a much more positive and optimistic mood. It's time for a game. This was a thing and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. With Mark Schroeder. Fatty Arbuckle made me laugh. Make make you laugh? Yes, Mark Schroeder. The man made me laugh all the time. You know, he's not the first person to be involved in someone's death. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> Rob? Why are you looking at me? Why are you looking at Ray? Unless Ray opened his big fucking mouth again. This game is called I Know What You Did, Rob Schneider, and Who You've Killed. Comedy. Celebrities have kind of been a little lucky when it comes to, you know, skirting real consequences for some of their actions. Oh, I remember one time I got cut off in traffic by Miss Carol Burnett. <laughs> and sought revenge. I pulled my ear next time I saw her. Mm -hmm. and pulled hers right off. I am not so glad we had this time together. <laughs> there are a lot of celebrities out there who have done some horrible things. And yes. In addition to... Fatty Arbuckle may or may not have, but yes. there's a lot of ones that have done terrible things. Yes. And I've compiled a list here and a little bit of a game called It's Curtains for You. Can you say coitins? It's Coitins <laughs> for You. Thank you. I'm going to read a clue about a famous person who was linked to another person's death or attempted death. Robin okay. Ray, you're going to work together to identify this person. These are all people that you will know. He was charged with attempted murder in 1988 after assaulting two Vietnamese-American men on the street, knocking one unconscious with a wooden stick. Mark Wahlberg. Mark, how soon we forget Wahlberg. Exactly right. Never forget about Mark. As long Mark. as he's making people money, they're going to look the other Marky way. Marky Mac! When this actress was 15, her mother shot and killed her alcoholic father in an act of self-defense. What? Say it again. When this actress was 15, her mother shot and killed her alcoholic father in an act of self-defense. Charlize Theron. That is correct. I never knew yes. that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty wild story. Apparently. Did she witness that? Was she there? She was there, yeah. Apparently oh he had a gun and he was. they were on the other side of a door and he was oh my shoot God. into the bathroom where they were. I didn't were. know that. This professional boxing money man was convicted of second degree murder in 1967 after stomping someone to death over a $600 debt. Don King? Yeah. Don King. In 2014, this former Olympian was found guilty of culpable homicide and reckless endangerment with a firearm. Blade Runner, Oscar Pistorius. Oscar Pistorius is correct. This three-time Emmy Award winner and director of the TV adaptation of August Wilson's The Piano Lesson pled guilty to manslaughter in 1967 after killing a man he claimed attacked him with a knife. Charles Dutton. Yes. This professional athlete narrowly avoided legal charges after another car collided with her SUV before she cleared the intersection, killing a 78-year-old man and injuring another person in the second vehicle. Would that be gubernatorial candidate Miss Caitlyn Jenner? Incorrect. This is Venus Williams. Oh. Venus Williams. Really? Yes. This R&B singer was never formally charged, but settled multiple lawsuits out of court after rear-ending a car on the 405 freeway at 65 miles an hour and killing the driver. 
Would this be prom date of Kobe Bryant, Brandy? You bet your bottom dollar. You know your celebrity deaths. In 2013, this former New England patriot was charged with first-degree murder in addition to five gun-related charges for the murder of a friend, Odin Lloyd. Aaron Hernandez. Aaron Hernandez is correct. Crazy documentary. On the night of November 6th, 1963, two days after her 17th birthday, this former first lady of the United States ran a stop sign and struck another car, killing its driver. That would be first lady and librarian, Laura Bush. That is correct. Shh, I killed somebody. That's her as the librarian. Yeah, telling you. Exactly. <laughs> and finally, in 1993, this rapper was charged with first degree murder after a member of a rival gang was shot and killed by his bodyguard, McKinley Lee. 93. Snoop Dogg? Snoop Dog oh. is correct. I think, oh, you didn't get the Venus Williams, but no, I think no. you cleaned up otherwise. 90%. Way to go with your morbid celebrity murder knowledge, boys. Thank you. You're prime suspects in all these cases now, based on your knowledge, and we'll see you down at the LA You're Department. never going to be alive, Kappa! <laughs> ah. Any other you can think of, Rob? Yeah, any other murders out there? Robert Blake. Yeah, big one. Yeah, Phil Spector. Phil Spector. Spector. Um, OJ. Allegedly. OJ allegedly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. Friends, if you have any thoughts on the Fatty Arbuckle trial, because it's still pressing on our minds after 100 years, <laughs> it, it won't go away. Hit us up. Let us know what you think. Innocent, guilty, framed. Fatty. Fatty. <laughs> what was her name? Maud? Bambina Maud. Bambina Maud Delmond. Thoughts on her? Who's the equivalent of her today? And let us know what you think, and we will talk to you all very, very soon. See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. Bye-bye now. See ya, Maud. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cutcut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing's Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 